Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 45, and this is literally the only psalm that is like it in the entire book of the Psalms. Now, this is a psalm, again, penned by the sons of Korah, and this is now, I think, like the third or fourth one that you've heard from them so far. But we see from the superscription that it is set according to Shoshanim, which simply means it's a song set according to the lilies. Now, we don't know exactly what that would sound like, but these people evidently did. It would be a known arrangement in their own day. But we also see, if you look at the superscription with me, it says that it is a a maskal of the sons of Korah. The idea behind this is that this is not merely a psalm that sounds sweet and pleasant to the ears. It is following in the tradition of wisdom literature, meaning it is meant to be didactic or to teach you and I something about what is being said. Well, here we further see that this is a song of love. And so what it's meant to teach you is about love, which is a beautiful and good thing. In its purest essence, this psalm is simply designed to teach us what an ideal portrait of marriage actually looks like. It highlights the nature and role of a godly husband and wife, and it calls us to look at it not just as a beautiful and wonderful gift from God himself, but something that is to be exercised with great purpose and great sobriety as we navigate through it. But again, it is also something to be delighted in by others. When a marriage functions as it should be, it is a thing of profound beauty to all who see it. And that's what we see in this psalm here today. The reason for this is relatively simple. Witnesses to a godly marriage truly see a reflection of Christ's relationship to his own bride. In other words, it's a reflection of the gospel, and we see shades of that even here today. Now, we cannot read this psalm and understand it without understanding how marriage is designed by God to be a reflection of the gospel. In fact, the psalmist even paints the beauty of the marriage covenant in light of the Davidic covenant, which is, again, undoubtedly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that today here. But in all of it, his goal is still to paint this portrait of what an ideal marriage between a man and his wife is supposed to be as they set their hearts and minds and affections and even in their actions in light of what that looks like. So when I sat down to originally write out my sermon outline and everything else, I actually looked at this and thought I was going to try and preach it in one go. But as I worked through it, I maybe got to verse 10 and I was already three quarters of the way through with what I need to be able to preach on a Sunday morning. And so I actually decided at that point, it might be better to simply split this sermon in two. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see the first half of it, verses one through nine, where he focuses in on the king or the husband, if you will. And then the second half will be one in which we focus on the queen or the wife, if you will. And so my whole goal with it is to simply show you the reality of what it looks like to have a godly marriage and a beautiful marriage, because that's the part of the purpose behind it, essentially. It's not simply a thing in which we maintain our duties, but it is a thing in which we delight in, and it reflects, again, just characteristic beauty that God has created marriage to be. So what we find in this description, again, is an Israelite king who has four different qualities of a godly husband, and it paints this portrait for us. When we have all sorts of things that might make a halfway decent marriage, and I think we know that well enough in our culture, But if our marriage is to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these are qualities that we must be known by as husbands. If you are a man, these are things to strive for within your marriage as you either pursue a spouse or you have a spouse. If you are a young woman looking for a husband, these are non-negotiable qualities. What I mean by that is simply that if your emotions are leading you in how you pursue marriage rather than the objective reality of what a husband is to be, then you have already set your heart up to failure. These are the things we should be looking for in a spouse. If you are a wife, whether or not your husband embodies these things as he should, these are things that you can and should be praying for him to just increase in all the more. 
Because these are, again, things that portray a beautiful marriage, a good marriage. Now, the first reality that we see in this is that there's a husband who is ruled with words of grace. That's the ideal portrait of the king here. The second is that he is a man of valor. He contends for the truth and does so in meekness, and he does so in righteousness. And the third is that a godly husband will rule by justice and righteousness, meaning he is abiding by God's commandments. And fourthly, this final one is that he will see his wife as his helper, more precious to him than anyone else. So look with me now to verse one, and we see the psalmist begin his song here. Now notice what he says. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. In light of everything that I've said thus far about this psalm in the introduction, this is just serving as a prelude to everything he's about to say. His focus, again, is going to be largely on the king, as you just saw. But notice how the contents of his heart are literally bubbling up as he goes about this task. The reason is simple. Marriage is a good and a godly thing. He's actually excited about what he's about to sing. And so when he sees that this king and this queen are both a praiseworthy people, they're entering into a praiseworthy union, it's a thing of much joy and celebration, not simply for him, but for everybody who's going to gather. He is eager to declare, in other words, that this marriage, because it's entered into rightly, it's a wondrously beautiful occasion. Now look with me now to verse 2, and we see the psalmist portray or start to portray this man as a thing of beauty in form and speech. In other words, he's saying his demeanor entirely is framed by grace. He says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And notice how he begins his portrayal as the king who's fairer than the rest of the men around him. Now, as he's describing this man in all of his grandeur, his portrayal is more than just simply the external factors. And these are the things we tend to focus on, right? But what he's looking at is a man that is striking in appearance, but this is his demeanor or stature as a whole. In other words, he's looking upon the whole man and seeing that in every single way, his physical stature, his inward stature, his external appearance of beauty, his internal appearance of beauty is actually matched in two, meaning that he is a man exuding grace, In every meaningful way, he is a king who stands head and shoulders above the rest because ultimately he has made it his delight to fear the Lord. Now, in essence, again, this is the ideal portrait of a husband. His character must be godly. All his ways must be informed by wisdom. It's easy to find one who should look like a king, isn't it? Right? We have people that can easily masquerade as one thing. It's an altogether different thing, though, to actually find somebody who is worthy as a king. And that's basically what he's getting at here. The same applies to the marriage covenant as he's looking at it. It's easy to find an attractive spouse. It is far more difficult to find a godly man or wife. In the same manner, it's easy to have a young man who gives the appearance of godliness. He might fool many in his sight. But it's an altogether different thing for a young man to actually be godly. Well, the godly king, however is apparent to everybody here. I mean, there's no mistaking this because his form just exudes this. One of the clearest indications you find, though, is how he speaks. That's what he's basically getting at here. Notice he draws attention to the fact that grace is poured out upon his lips. And his point here is simply to say that this king is characterized by gracious speech. As we look to the book of Proverbs, we find much that speaks very plainly about our language and how we speak. And the idea is that the way one speaks, both privately and publicly, really reveals their soul. I mean, that at the base level is what we find, is that how they speak is a revelation of their heart. But it's not just public. A gracious man will be characterized by gracious speech And it's simply a way of saying that his tongue is ruled by kindness and compassion and loyalty and honesty and everything, in other words, that is good and from God. He will know how to speak a fitting word in its proper season. Now contrast the way of the righteous man and righteous speech with the wicked man, and you find this to be self-evident. I mean, we all know of wicked men. Proverbs 10.32 tells us, though, that the lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable or good, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. There's a very big difference there. Again, Ecclesiastes 10.12 says, 
The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. He, he's literally consumed by his own speech. Proverbs 16, 23 through 24 again tells us, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth, meaning it actually dictates how he speaks. It adds persuasiveness to his lips. And so he's actually having pleasant words, but they are as a honeycomb. They are sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. It's not a man who nearly knows how to speak and to flatter and to get his way. It's a man whose every word is captivated for the glory of God, for the betterment of those who hear him. In other words, he seeks to be a blessing in how he speaks and to edify rather than to ruin. Now contrast that again with the wicked man from Proverbs 6. Solomon writes, a worthless person, a wicked man, or I'm sorry, David, uh, a worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth. So we hear that again. He winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, he points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually, never ending, continually devises evil and spreads strife. There's a very big difference between the gracious speech of a wise man and the unrighteous speech of a wicked man. In all of it, the idea is much the same that Christ speaks of when he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. One's true character is revealed by how they speak, and this is especially true in a marriage or even just a simple dating relationship. One might be given to a flattering tongue and yet privately destroy those they are closest to. They might also be given to lies and deception or manipulation and speech that is promoting wickedness or their own agenda to get simply what they want. But the righteous man, that is not so. He might speak foolishly from time to time, but the man's lips are controlled by words of grace. Within the context of a godly marriage, the wise husband is one, again, who is honest and gentle. He is forgiving. He confesses his sins openly, but he does so that he might actually model a life of righteousness that he might model forgiveness and repentance. That's what it means in essence to have words of graciousness fall from your lips continually. It has all of this in mind and, and more truthfully, but at the very minimum, I mean, beloved, at the very minimum, it depicts a man who is so filled with grace that his mouth cannot help but pour forth grace on others. It has nothing to do with flattery. He's a man who's gained an honest reputation but his speech is evidence of the grace of God already at work. And that's what he drives to here. That's what we find depicted at the end of verse two. If you look down, you'll see this is what he says. When the psalmist says that the Lord has blessed this man forever, all he's showing is that his gracious character and speech are evidence of God's grace. They're evidence of God's grace in his life. In every single manner, the favor of God rests on this man, but it's evident to everybody who sees him. They don't have to wonder, in other words, if he is hiding something or trying to manipulate. Well, think of the description in light of those who are wicked kings that were talked about in the book of Judges, right? Few kings conducted themselves with honor and integrity, and few were even known as people that were gracious, but rather every word from their mouth was essentially poison. They don't exude grace from every poor. Rather, they're given the epitaph of one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. They not only participated in all sorts of different licentious activities and idolatry and everything else, they were men who by their tongue destroyed the nation. As we move through this psalm, though, what we find is that this man, this man's actually a good king. He's a praiseworthy king. That's why these guys are excited to go to the marriage. He's the embodiment of a righteous man. He loves the Lord. And as the people gather to celebrate this day, it makes the wedding all the more precious to them. Because when you see a righteous man and a righteous bride, it is a, an incredible thing of beauty. Right? His righteous conduct, they know on the throne, is going to extend into every aspect of his life. How he upholds his covenant with his God is how he will uphold in faithfulness to his covenant with his wife. When you have a man who is ruled by gracious speech, by words of grace, again, he uses it to build. There are times where he has to destroy, but it is always to build. And what you will see, what you will find is always, and I do mean always, a wife who will flourish under him. 
the natural result of a man who is characterized by, by dignity and grace and truth and righteousness in his speech and everything else is that his household will be characterized by these same exact qualities. Again, his words provide nourishment for their souls. He will lift up that which is good and true and even beautiful. And the reason for this is very, very simple. His goal is to honor the Lord and to bless others. That's what his whole focus is. When we get down to it, if you want to know what a man thinks of God and his word and how a man thinks of Christ, you need not look any further than how he speaks to his wife. I know that is a hard word, but it is a true word. The speech of a husband is literally a window into his soul. It's a, it's a window into everybody's soul, but it's a portrait for him of what he believes about his task to represent the gospel faithfully. The more like Christ he becomes, the more his words will fall like dew upon the garden he seeks to cultivate that is his wife. The more like Christ he becomes, the more he pours out blessing in his speech upon everybody. His reputation precedes him, meaning when people speak of this man, when they think of this man, they think of his goodness and graciousness and his godly character. They don't think of him as one who is filled with malice and selfishness and hypocrisy or manipulation. He's a worthy man. He speaks truth, but he does so in love. He genuinely has a love for people. Now, again, words of grace are not always words that make us feel good. They're not always words that make us feel good. But they are properly and carefully and even lovingly chosen words that will inevitably point us back to the truth and to God himself. And so if you wish to see if a man is blessed of God, Look at how he speaks. Look at how he blesses others with his tongue or curses them, both privately and publicly. Now, again, this is what characterizes part of what is a, a beautiful marriage. It is the ideal here. It's part and parcel to what makes it lovely. A man who seasons his speech with much grace, who is ruled by Christ, in effect will produce something that is all the more lovely as time goes on. And you see this within old sweet couples where their goal is one direction towards Christ, in everything, though they might at times continually need to seek forgiveness, they have that same unity of mind and spirit in which they are both looking to build rather than to destroy. Again, the first quality of a godly husband is that his words are filled with grace. And yet it is not merely that he speaks a word that is fitting in its proper season. He is a man of much valor. He's a man of bravery. He takes risk. He contends ultimately for the truth and for meekness and for righteousness. In other words, he's not one that just simply shrinks back and is that ever kind, winsome, quote unquote, man that you find all the time. He is a man who is actually brave and goes into the battle. He harnesses his strength when it actually needs to be harnessed. And this is what we see in verses three through four, where we see the valor of the king. But notice he uses it for a very specific purpose. The psalmist writes, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and, ma and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and let your right hand teach you awesome things. Now, this section focuses on a series of imperatives, which are commands, and the idea is that in light of his character, that is, in light of a man who already exudes grace, these are things that are reminding him of his ultimate task as king, but as husband as well. Now, the first command given to the king is that he's, he's ultimately to prepare for battle, right? He is a man that goes forth as a man of war. And the idea is that he has already an awesome appearance and he carries himself as a king. He commands respect, in other words. And if you're a friend of this king, you're, you're encouraged by the mere sight of him. But if you're an enemy of the king, you are terrified of him. It brings dread. He's described as a mighty one. Now, if you remember, David's ma uh, band of merry men, if you will, are called mighty ones, aren't they? Now, this goes well beyond a man who is simply fit for battle. He can actually do things that no other ordinary man can do. The idea is that he's a man of courage. He's a man of cunning and conviction. He encounters danger, in other words, head on. He does not shrink back. He stands boldly at the front line and, again, does things that no ordinary man can do. Now, you can read about the exploits of these men in 2 Samuel 23 and also in 1 Chronicles 11, 
But to give you an idea of just what he means by a mighty one, you have a man named Joshe Bashibeth. It's an interesting name, right? You have this man, and it says that he slaughters 800 men in one battle with a spear. 800 men. He just kills them. I mean, like it's nothing. These are not men to be trifled with. These are men, fierce, fierce men who are brave and strong, and you do not want to underestimate them. But notice the second command is given to this king that he's to ride on victoriously, but he has a very specific cause he is to ride for. He is to ride on for truth and for meekness and for righteousness. In other words, all of his exploits are to be contained to true acts of genuine heroism. He doesn't go to battle for frivolous causes or to merely expand his own little kingdom or for personal gain. What he's doing is actually advancing what God calls is good. He's a man that's bound by honor for the sake of these qualities. He loves truth and he loves meekness and he loves righteousness. By truth, it simply means he is ruled by faithfulness to the word of God in everything he does, even as he goes to war. Again, think of the kings many times who simply went and took what they wanted. You have Ahab, right? He, he complains. He's like a little boy just kind of kicking and screaming on his bed and turned over on his side and moaning, not getting all that he desires. And so his wife Jezebel comes in, right? And what does she do? Well, she sets a situation up so that way the man he wanted the vineyard from is actually killed, right? And then Ahab just goes and takes what he wanted to begin with. That's an evil king, what we see here is that this man who goes to battle, he's still going to go to battle, but he goes for the right cause. Now, by meekness, the idea is that everything he does is that he's holding his strength under control. That's what meekness is. It's not that he's a coward or a timid man. He's not a, afraid to wield his strength. In other words, he's actually one who will, who will harness all of his raw power and might, but he will do it for the right reasons. He will do it for the right cause. When the time comes... He's not afraid to unleash the fullness of his fury and his strength, but he never, beloved, never uses it to abuse or to disobey or to simply even show his strength. In other words, he's not really concerned that people see him as a strong man. He is a strong man. And when the time comes and the need comes, he shows his strength and dignity. He's always using it to stand up for what's good. Now, by righteousness, again, it's speaking to that which comes from God himself. And in a, in a nutshell, it's speaking of his obedience to the law of God. He's to do what's just or what is right and honest. In other words, he's not to operate with one expectation for one person and another for everybody else. In everything, he deals in equity and fairness. He is to uphold the law of God. He treats them with respect to God's law. In other words, he's saying, how would God decide this situation? How does God's word lead me to decide this situation? Not how do I feel about that person on that given day? Not I want to treat them with partiality above this person, but what is the good and the right thing to do regardless of the cost? He doesn't bend to the whims of others as well. In everything, his focus is how may I please my God? Now, the third command is he's to let his right hand teach him awesome things. Now, what he means here is simply that there's an authority, there's an, a reverence that is to go forth from his command. By right hand, it's speaking to his intrinsic right to rule, but to rule with power. It's a figure of speech that speaks of his authority over his kingdom. And it's a safeguard to those who do good, but for those who do evil, it's a thing of terror. It's the same kind of idea that Paul gives in Romans 13, where he talks about the magistrate. This is how this king is to lead. And everything... He's a man already filled with all of these qualities, though, but he's to continue in cultivating them all the more because he's to continually advance the good and righteous cause of God. Well, the depiction given here is of a man of virtue, ultimately a man of virtue who pursues God with all of his might. That's his guiding task and everything. That's what he looks at. And so when we look to this within the context of the marriage, again, because this psalm is a royal wedding psalm, the natural of ex extension of his bravery, of his strength, and all those things are actually harnessed even within the marriage covenant. He's not reactionary, in other words, in his leadership. His focus, again, is how he might please the Lord, how he might direct all things to advance the cause of truth and goodness and righteousness. He's actively on the offensive, in other words. He's battling against evil, but again, not because evil has invaded 
but because he knows he continually needs to push the line back and to defend, but also to attack. He's always looking to defend and attack for the cause of truth and meekness and for the righteousness of the Lord. To put it in the clearest terms, he's not looking to just keep evil at bay. He's not content with that. He knows that he must bring forth what is good and right in the land. So in order to do this, he must actually know what the truth is and what righteousness is and what meekness is and how to exercise these good godly gifts. If you look at how a godly man might lead by the truth, the plain fact is that he must simply be the one who ensures the word of God reigns supreme in his home. He will be the primary shepherd, in other words. He will guide them in the truth. He will continually look to say, how do we bring things back to submission to the word of God? And it dictates he must not only know the word of God in and out, but that he might be able to lead others in the truth of that. He's a man that is also in submission to that truth himself. That's the overarching idea is that he's not just a man who has a head knowledge or can point you to somebody else who has a head knowledge. He actually can harness this and cultivate it for himself. And he says, this is the way we go. In other words, if you cut the man, he bleeds Bible. Now, the godly husband sees the word of God as the compass to the home. It informs how he leads, what decisions that he will make, how a family will even spend their time and resources and money. In all of it, literally in every single step of the way, his focus is to say, thus saith the Lord, and therefore we shall do it. Now, as to keeping his strength under control, this is the same concept of meekness as what I described above. The idea is that his strength is kept hidden. It is a hidden resource that he draws from when he needs to. He's not a brute. He doesn't attack and push and pull and push his wife underneath his thumb. What he does is that he needs to use his strength in the proper time, and so he harnesses it for that. He does it, though, ultimately in humility. That's... That's the idea. He is not one who merely defends or battles. He is one who can serve by putting on the apron of a slave and keep everything subdued so that only at the proper time he uses strength. But he serves as a slave to his God. His strength might need to come to bear in his own home at times. I mean, that's just a reality. At some points, he might have to stand firmly for what is good and true and right and even beautiful. He may, after times have to look at his wife and say, sweetheart, sweetheart, I love you, but this is what the word of God says, and we must do it. We are bound. We are bound to God and bound by honor to uphold his law and his word. And so all of this then just folds naturally into the last description of the man given here in verses three through four and five, and that's that he advances the cause of righteousness. In other words, that's his sole goal, His goal is not, again, to build his own little kingdom. He places himself and his household under submission to the will of the Lord and the commands of God. Notice how in all of it, the word is what reigns supreme. The word is what informs and dictates everything. And so the reality for us husbands or those who who want to be husbands is that if we want to be a godly husband, we must lay the base of all of our convictions at the very word of God itself. The scriptures must be the reigning authority and not merely in a passive sense, but an active sense. What I mean by that is that we actually don't just sit here and try to defend. We must go on the assault. Godliness in the home will never be something that just magically happens, beloved. It will never be something that just happens apart from regular exposure to the word of God as we seek to study it and to obey it and even to teach it. But we must head into the battle first. In other words, we must cultivate those disciplines for ourselves and only then can we lead. As a husband leads with a clear directive from the very word of God, the anticipation though that he says here in verse five is that he will actually prevail over evil. There's a principle here. Notice what he says first though. The psalmist writes, your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And the point in this verse is much the same as it was in in 3 through 4, but the idea is that the anticipated result, again, is that he will actually be successful in his God-given role if he exercises it rightly. In other words, evil, in all of its ugliness, will not prevail. 
That's a beautiful thing. Part of his work is to, again, advance God's cause, but then he has this actual guarantee here that he's going to go to, as he goes to war for what is good, God will actually honor that. That's incredible. Now, again, we've seen his task is not merely preservation, but he is to, to advance God's kingdom, and that requires of him, it literally requires of him that he has this wartime mindset, that he actually has skill in battle. Again, these are not secondary motives of the king, in other words. This is what his whole business is. He is to fight always and evermore on behalf of these virtues. To put it in the simplest way I can, he has given his whole life to God's cause. Every bit of his life is given over for the cause of God and God's kingdom. The promise given that the king will prevail, is, is very specific. Don't get me wrong. It, it applies to this man who is on this throne. He's part of the Davidic covenant. He's on the throne of David. But the, again, there is a clear principle that applies to us as, as men and as husbands. The man of valor ultimately is one who battles with an expectation that goodness will prevail. We expect that goodness will prevail. We, we realize we've been called to this purpose We are the ones given and charged with protecting and guarding and cherishing and even laying our lives down, if we must, for the sake of what is good. But the results we know are ultimately up to our God. What it indicates is that, as husbands, we're simply going to be faced with an actual battle. It's always going to be a battle. Even though we might not pick up a literal sword, it is always going to be war. What this draws out more clearly for us, though, is we must never grow weary of that battle. We must never grow weary of our duty to fight on behalf of what is good and right and just. In an age where literally everything good is under attack, beloved, I mean, simply look at at everything around you. When everything good is under attack, we have to be men who are powerful, (laughs) We have to rise and defend. We have to rise and even attack. At the end of the day, we must recognize, though, that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities and powers of darkness that seek to undo every single thing that God has declared in his word to be good and lovely and right. But we are one of the many men, and I do mean many men, who have stood on this earth and lived, waging a war against the principalities of darkness. This is all part of that grand story of redemption. Brothers, we are called to the front lines, though. And it's a worthy calling. We don't use the weapons of this age as we enter into the fray. We pick up the ordinary means that God has given us every single day of the week. We pick up God's grace. We pick up God's power by his word and trust that his spirit will do as he pleases in order to affect the change that he desires. In all things, we trust him. We commune with the people known as the church. We teach our wives and our children what it looks like to love God's people, to love God's people. We sing praises to our king, boldly declaring to Satan and his minions that Christ has defeated them. But more than this, that he has defeated sin and death itself, that one day we are simply waiting for his return. We teach our families what it means to love the Lord and to take everything captive for the glory of God, which in the end means that we model what it looks like ultimately to die to self and to live to Christ. We show our families what it looks like to live with a singular purpose where we fight sin, where we give hearty thanks over good food and good drink, and we enjoy the goodness of God's creation in simple wonder and praise and adulation of the one who gave us all such good gifts. In all of it, to be a king in God's court is to simply model the life of a slave. And that is how we wage war. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? The king in this psalm is a man who knows his kingdom isn't his. He's not fooled by that. He's simply on retainer for the one who comes, who will rule forevermore and to sit on that throne forever. He even acknowledges that. The psalmist even acknowledges that here. There's there's this greater reality at display within the Davidic covenant, and that's what he comes to show us here in this psalm in verses 6 through 7. 
He shows us that there is one to come who will rule in perfect justice and righteousness, and yet that extends still to this earthly king. So look with me now to verses 6 and 7. Now, as we come to this section, it's important to understand there is a greater meaning or a fuller meaning to these two verses here. The reason for this is simply that verses 6 and 7 are quoted in Hebrews 1, where it refers to Christ and his eternal rule. So the fact that the author of Hebrews uses this text has been no shortage of controversy in the church and how people actually understand this psalm. Now, some of it take it then because it refers explicitly to Christ here. I mean, there's no shadow of a doubt. They take this whole psalm then to be messianic. They are going to say that uh, ultimately the whole, every bit of it refers to Christ or some aspect of Christ's rule. And there are reasons that this could be plausible, but it takes some creative hermeneutics to make this psalm exclusively about Christ. And you have to spiritualize any reference to the original setting and meaning, meaning you have to ignore the fact that it's actually about a king and a queen on their wedding day. Now, when they interpret it this way, they look at verses two through nine as if they speak exclusively to Christ. And then because of this, they then take verses 10 through 15 as if they speak about the church. And then you have to look at verses 16 and 17 as if it speaks about that great wedding feast or the great wedding day uh, between the church and the Lord where we are united to him for all eternity. And again, while that might preach extremely well, which, I mean, you could hear how that would preach, the problem is that it doesn't answer certain questions in this psalm. Now, one of them, if you look at verse 7, he says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So if you notice, he draws a contrast between this earthly king in Psalm 45 and this one who has anointed him, meaning God, and this earthly guy. So others stand and understand this as in the middle of it, that this guy is just simply bursting forth with praise, meaning that he's stopped it and he says, oh God, your God, right? But the problem is that, again, still doesn't really answer that question. Why does he need to clarify by saying, God, your God has anointed you? Well, the other view, which I hold, is simply that this is messianic, but there are aspects of the psalm that are messianic, meaning that not every single line is cut and dry in terms of being a messianic psalm, but that it does indeed speak to Christ. It does highlight this greater reality, but it still gives us an original context in which it folds into. And what it means is that there is a particular king and a particular bride in mind when this psalm was penned. We don't have any mention of who this person is, but we know undoubtedly from the description we are finding that he is one of the few good kings, But for two, he must be from the line of David. And the reason I say this is because he gives a reiterance of the Davidic covenant. He reaffirms the promise to David. The challenge to this is simply that in verses six through seven, they refer to this king as Elohim. That's the Hebrew word that we often find translated as master or God. So what's important to know is that that term Elohim, it's a generic title. It's not Yahweh himself. It's not the specific name of God. It's often translated to refer as a generic title, but even often to certain men in positions of authority. So in Exodus 7.1, we find that God himself actually refers to Moses as Elohim. He says, see, I make you as Elohim to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Again, in Exodus 21, verse 6, he says, the judges are referred to as Elohim. In Psalm 138, 1, which is the Psalm of David, even David refers to rulers as Elohim. Again, the title is a generic one often used to simply denote one who has authority. And we also find in even the New Testament by Christ himself in John 10, he refers all the way back to Psalm 82, in which he, again, he calls certain rulers gods or Elohim, if you will. The idea is not that they are some divine person, but that they simply have an idea Uh, an aspect in which they are representatives of God on earth because of the intrinsic authority granted to them. It shows not only that they are actually functioning in an incredibly important role, it actually stresses how dependent they are upon God for their rule. In other words, in every single aspect of it, those who have been referred to as Elohim in the Old Testament and even in part in the New Testament, as Christ refers to it, are all these men who were subjected to the rule and reign of God and were to be his vice regents on earth. They were, in other words, a stand-in for the king of kings. That's what we find with reference to the king here. He is a stand-in for the king of kings. 
His task was to function as if God himself were present before the people and ruling. And that's an incredibly high calling. Now, as we look to this psalm, that's, that's the idea being conveyed here in these verses. The king is a representative of Yahweh. It undoubtedly, though, still refers to Christ and his eternal rule. So this is where it becomes particularly important for us to understand all of what was given as a promise to King David, specifically the promise that one would come that we know as Christ who would rule on his throne forevermore. Now, you don't need to go there now. You can go there in your own time. I've included the reference in the notes, but 2 Samuel 7 is a chapter that deals exclusively with the Davidic covenant. And in 7.16 in particular, God gives a promise to David that after he dies, right, he goes to the grave that his house and his kingdom shall endure forever before God, and his throne shall be established forever before God. Now, here in Psalm 45, this is basically an exact replication of that same promise. Its ultimate reference point is that there is one who is going to come, and he will rule on this throne forevermore. And so, in the middle of this wedding song, what he's doing is showing that this is a very special wedding. This is one who is from the Davidic line, and this is one through whom the Messiah will come. And ultimately, this wedding is a portrayal of the beauty of that day when the Christ comes. He shall reign on David's throne forever. And even here, they see that this man is incredibly, incredibly blessed. So again, it refers both to the time when the Messiah would come. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. And yet also to this earthly king who has inherited this promise from God. The the ultimate reference point for the psalm is Christ, but it still doesn't divorce it again from its ultimate context in the royal wedding psalm. Now, we'll pick up more on this as we come to it back next week, Lord willing, but picture this much like the idea that Paul gives in Ephesians 5, where he talks about husbands as they are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and in it, he says this is a mystery that refers to the gospel. And so in much the same way, we're seeing foreshadows or allusions to the same reality that Paul makes explicit in the New Testament. It's undoubtedly pointing to this greater reality, and yet the idea is simply that the marriage covenant is still a portrayal of this greater reality. That's why it makes it so beautiful. Now, as we look to the immediate context of these verses, what we find then is that what becomes clear is this man is actually one who sets his rule his authority, his dominion within the framework of justice and righteousness. In other words, they are to characterize every single aspect of his authority. He is God's representative on earth and therefore the one who is to embody the ideal government of God by following God's ideal prescribed standards in the law. He is to rule, in other words, with justice and equity. So notice how verses 6 and 7 speak of this idea of the light of the scepter of uprightness. Now, all this is doing is referring to, again, his authority and dominion and his kingdom. But he's saying that this is a kingdom that is of righteousness and fairness. It's to characterize every single aspect of his rule. And yet the land actually sees this plainly. You have this psalmist going forth and proclaiming these things before the people, and they're saying in everything, this is a man who actually conducts himself as a king of God should. He is a righteous man. He is a man who loves God and his commandments. Now in verse 7, he gives further clarity to this, and look, look at what he says with me. You have loved righteousness, and you have hated wickedness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He is a man that is truly given to God's ways, in other words. Now, the way that the Hebrew expresses it is that he's not just simply despised what is evil, he has made it his enemy. It is the complete opposite of what he is striving after. What he has made his friend, then, is righteousness and justice and goodness. He looks out and he has a choice between evil and good, and he says, no, I despise evil, and yet righteousness I love. Righteousness is my friend. Righteousness is my companion through thick and thin. And so we see that as a result of his devotion, ultimately, because that's what it's portraying, his devotion to God and his law, God anoints him with the oil of joy above everyone else in all creation. What he means by this is that, again, God has actually blessed him. He's blessed him with this joy that nobody else seems to have. And by this, he's showing the people, and this is radically important, he's showing the people that his favor actually rests upon him. 
It's not merely that this man has spoken fitting words. It's not merely that he's a brave man. God's favor actually rests upon him. And again, contrast this with a man who is not worthy. A man who has a divided heart, who loves his sin, who loves to manipulate and to get his way in everything. Ultimately, what that shows is a man who is not filled with grace. He's not ruled by God and his law. He's a man given to his belly, which is his Lord. This is a unique blessing that comes upon him as a result of faithfulness and an undivided heart. But once more, it shows again just how special, just how beautiful this marriage would be. The queen is truly in an enviable position, and the reason is simply that her husband-to-be embodies everything that she would desire in a spouse, if she's a godly woman, at least. His rule will characterize his rule in the home. I should rather say his rule in all the land will characterize how he leads at home. If he loves justice, if he loves righteousness, this is a good thing because it means that in every single aspect, he's going to be guided by these principles. He's not going to be a tyrant, in other words. Look at how different that portrayal of leadership is and how our world conceives of it, or even how many in the church conceive of it. We tend to look at the authority vested in a man and think it's an awful thing, or even a thing that's um, you know, begrudgingly that we, we have to yield ourselves to and as women submit to, or as men even walk into. But his portrait of it here is that this is a thing of delight when people see it exercised rightly. It's a thing of joy. It's a thing of grandeur and splendor. The reason, again, is all because he has made the word of God his delight. When the word of God functions in a man's heart as it should, he will characterize this. Again, the ideal expression of marital bliss that he displays here is that he leads according to God's righteous standard. And yet the implication is that if he doesn't love righteousness and hate wickedness, none of these qualities will actually be evident in him. In other words, it is the love of righteousness and justice that produce a man who speaks words of grace. It is the love of righteousness and justice that produces a brave man, one who fights on behalf of the cause of goodness and righteousness and truth and, and all that is meek and good. It's a man who loves righteousness and justice that enables him to actually lead well. But we mustn't think that a husband will not lead either way. We, we all lead no matter how we stretch it. We either lead as a tyrant, we either lead as one who abdicates everything, or we lead according to God's standard in in his righteousness. The husband who loves righteousness and justice will lead. He will, quote unquote, rule, if you will, but he will be ruled by the word of God that will influence every single decision in his home. But it's not simply that he does it out of obligation and duty. He does it because he knows that the only thing that will cause his little kingdom, so to speak, to flourish is the word of God. In other words, as he looks at his children and as he looks at his wife and he says, we must bring ourselves into submission to the word of God, he does it because he knows that it is the thing that will cultivate and beautify his home. He looks upon it and says, this is worthy of all my attention. I am God's representative in the home, and therefore I shall lead as God desires that I lead. And so my simple admonition, again, is that we must cultivate a love of the word. But deeper than this, we have to actually cultivate a love of righteousness and a hatred of wickedness. If the word never brings us to that point, why do we study? If the word never brings us to a deeper love of Christ, why do we read? Brothers, in every single way, we must cherish God and his word, and we must cherish it in such a way that evil becomes distasteful to us. What you love will shape your home, and what you hate will shape your home. And so the question is merely, what do you love and hate? Marriage is one of the many things that is uniquely designed to testify and to preach. It is a living, breathing, walking sermon. And the question is simply, again, What kind of sermon are we preaching? Now, as we see in verses 8 through 9, though, this is still not done. The righteous husband is not merely one who seasons his speech with grace. He's not merely a man of valor and bravery. He doesn't just contend and fight for truth and meekness and righteousness. He's not only just one who loves what is good and right and beautiful. 
he sees his wife as his supreme delight. He sees her as the extension of his own being. And this is what informs his bliss on a wedding day. He sees his bride in all her radiance and splendor and glory, and he loves her and cherishes her and honors her above all others. And this is what truly is part of the beauty, again, of marriage, at least a marriage that focuses rightly on what it should. Verses 8 through 9. He says, all of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces and stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now verses 8 and through 9 just simply describe the wedding day in all of its glory. Really, it is a, a beautiful occasion in pomp and circumstance. He's got everything just bedecked as it should be. He's covered with expensive fragrances and ointments. You have stringed instruments playing in the background, and you have all different things inlaid with ivory and gold. And you can imagine just kind of being there and seeing all of it. It would literally bring you to awe. But the occasion is worthy of all these different things. It's so worthy that even foreign kings from far off lands come, not so they can see the beauty of the wedding, but so they can see the beauty of their union. That's why they come. They see the man and his wife, and they say, this is very, very good. And the point is to show that, again, this is a a grand celebration, but beyond even their own land. They come, these people, these foreign people, to joyously celebrate. They see it as a thing of beauty to behold. But the reason all of it is a thing of celebration and beauty is because the external beauty pales in comparison to the internal beauty of that relationship. In other words, they can't make it opulent enough to display everything that's going on within the godly husband's heart and the godly wife's heart. They can't make it beautiful enough. That's what makes it so precious in the sight of these people. They, they're not merely eager to attend this wedding because they get to see all this stuff and eat some good food and see all of it you know, take place, they're actually seeing two beautiful souls united as one. And that's why they come. Now we're going to see the procession of the queen, Lord willing, next week. But for now, notice just how elegantly she is described. Again, the point of all this is to just highlight she is the crowning jewel of his reign. She is the crowning jewel. She is standing at his right hand, it says in verse 9, She's bedecked in gold from Ophir, and Ophir is a place where there's just incredible wealth, and, and to have gold from there, again, would speak of just the renown of what they're able to do. But the idea is that she is far more special than any, any other maiden. She is likewise a woman who holds herself in dignity and purity and loveliness, and she is radiant on her wedding day. Now think of how our culture has just simply cheapened and diminished the beauty of marriage. But then notice how this psalm just displays it in all of its splendor. It's a stark, stark contrast to a world that treats the marriage covenant as a thing to be discarded as if um, you could just throw it away like a napkin when you get bored of it or you get irritated enough. But it's also a stark contrast to the lie that is so often told that submission is a thing of ugliness. When she's placed at his right hand here, It's portraying the fact that she's placed to a place of prominence that no other gets to have. She has a thing of, or a wielding of authority that no other in the kingdom even has. She is truly special and she's truly granted many of the rights that the king has. There's an aspect in which it's portraying that her glory is seen in his glory, meaning that she actually completes him. There was something lacking in him before all this happened. And this is hearkening all the way back to Genesis. Just as Adam was incomplete without his bride, so too this king is incomplete without his bride. Her splendor adds to his. She is rightly seen as complementing the beauty of his reign and rule. By elevating her to his right hand, though, she is shown very, very clearly to be his helpmate. She is shown to be his crowning jewel, his treasure. And we see this truth on full display that even in this king, This king who inherits the promises and blessings of the Davidic covenant, this king who is majestic and awe-inspiring in form and character, who seasons all of his words with grace, who is a mighty man, is incomplete. 
He's incomplete without his bride. She adds to his glory. She adds to his majesty. But more than this, she compliments him in a way that no other person can. Again, this is such a beautiful portrayal of what a marriage is intended to be. It reminds us once again that the norm for humanity is marriage. That's the norm. A man stands incomplete without his bride, and when a suitable helper is actually found for him, it is a thing worthy of celebration and joy, and it is a thing to jealously protect and preserve in every single way that you can. When a man and woman enter into a marriage, and they do so by God's design, meaning that they actually look at how they can rule together as vice regents over creation, what we witness is not only something that is good and right, but something that is profoundly beautiful and testifies to the very first marriage of all creation. And yet it simultaneously testifies of the wife's dignity. It shows she is not merely one of the other women. She's not a noble woman. She's not even the daughter of one of the foreign kings. These are, again, women that would have been seen as prominent within the society. She stands head and shoulders above everyone else. Think of Song of Songs where he says, my lily is the fairest among the maidens. She is the extension of his own being. He sees her as more precious than any other woman. But she also is the extension of his authority. And he trusts her. And so as we look to the final aspect of what this means in a marriage, it's simply that a man who is a godly man will elevate his wife above all others. He will put her to a position of trust and dependence because she is his helpmeet. He trusts her. He loves her in this way. He has chosen her among all and pledged his faithfulness to her and to her alone. And in every meaningful way, he brings and shows her dignity. He shows her honor. He loves her as his own flesh, in other words, because he has made covenant with her. But again, he actually trusts her. He knows that he can actually elevate this woman to this position. He knows she'll be faithful in her calling. She will rule with him, and by extension, that she will wield authority and goodness under his dominion for the sake of God's kingdom. And now we're going to see next week how the psalmist frames all of her duties in light of this reality as well. But in short, I want you just to see she is a woman who is devoted to her husband. She is devoted to forsaking those who are her other relationships like parents or friends or family for the sake of following him. But the reason for it is that they actually are united in the same purpose. They both desire to glorify God. That's what unites them. But also notice the opulence and the beauty that this marriage shows us. It shows us that in its purest expression that all of the jewels and gold of this earth simply cannot pale in comparison to a genuinely beautiful marriage. In all of it, it shows us that you have a king who though he stands tall and strong and above every other man in the kingdom, needs a wife. He needs her, not only to rule with wisdom, but that he might actually continue to extend God's kingdom. In all of it, they gather because they see these two people are going to join as one. And the bonds of the covenant, when rightly understood and acted upon, not only will add to the increase of their joy, but the increase of God's kingdom. That's the beauty of marriage by design. Now, Lord willing, we'll pick back up on the remainder of this psalm next week, but now I just want to simply leave you with a few concluding thoughts. On what we've seen today, the responsibilities of a husband are many, but that's by design. A husband's role is, in part at least, that he embodies these characteristics. There's, there's more to this than what we find in the psalm, but he is a man that is to be utterly ruled by grace, so much that his mouth simply pours and exudes the grace of God. He is to be a man of valor, one who takes risks, if you will, but for the very specific cause of God's truth and meekness and righteousness. He is a man who is to lead by the authority of God's word, meaning he submits himself to the commandments of the Lord. And finally, he is a man who prizes his wife as his crowning jewel, for he knows that she completes him. That is what you should be as a husband and what I should be as a husband. And if you're looking for a husband, that's what you need to look for. 
Now, the job of a husband carries many more duties than what we've seen today, but what we have seen, again, give us the ideal portrait of a beautiful marriage. It is not just that it is a good thing, that it is one worthy to look upon from afar, but one that is worthy of emulation, and that ideally you would praise and give splendor and majesty and glory to God for the sake of this marriage. It's unlike any other thing in creation. We do well, especially in our day, to lift it exceedingly high. When a home functions as it's designed to, what it tells us is that it brings forth praise. People want to see it, but they ultimately want to see it because it brings forth praise to God himself. The marriage, again, is a picture of the gospel. Husbands, again, are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. It's a high and wonderful calling. They are incredibly hard shoes to fill. But when it is done rightly, when we bring our lives and the lives of all those under our charge, under submission to the word of God, what we find is that marriage becomes a beautiful sermon. It preaches of God's love towards his people. Inevitably, that's the greater reality at play here. All the things we've learned so far were perfectly, and I do mean perfectly lived out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The royal wedding psalm brings us in a rather wonderful way to see his work for the church. We can't read this psalm without thinking about him. He spoke in words of grace like no other before him, nor any who have come after. He lived and died as a God-man standing perfectly for the cause of truth. He embodied meekness, that is strength under control. He embodied humility like no other as he came down in the form of man. And he stood for righteousness. He stood for righteousness so perfectly that even we, wicked, vile men, are counted as righteous if we are in him and we are presented spotless before the Father. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness with the utmost perfection. And though he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief, in all of it, beloved, Christ looked to the possession which he was guaranteed as his inheritance, which is the church. It's us. And for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. This is what marriage is designed to reflect. In all its beauty and majesty and splendor, this is what a marriage is designed to reflect. In the minutiae, in the busyness of life, we forget that, don't we? In the hardships of life, and especially as our own selfish desires come out, we forget that. We forget the beauty of the true king as he laid down his life for us, but also how he calls us to lay down our lives for our wives. We always are short-sighted creatures. But this is a worthy, worthy calling because our marriage is to always preach a sermon to a watching world of a dying Savior. It is always testifying of what we believe about Christ and his gospel. And if you're looking for marriage, I beg you, look at what it says in light of that. If you're looking at some young man or some young woman, ask yourself, as a young woman, ask yourself, does this young man embody these characteristics? Would he lead others to see this as an occasion for praise and beauty in a world that has lost the wonder and beauty of a true marriage? Or is it simply a depiction of a bad gospel? If you're a young woman, look at these things and say, will a man come who will actually lead me in this way? He might not do so perfectly, but he makes it as every business and duty to do this. If you are a young man, look at it in light of this and say, how am I going to continually die to myself and preach the gospel through my life to whomever the Lord will give me? And if you're a husband, again, continually reorient your mind and your heart towards these things because this is our calling, brethren. We are brothers at arms and we are fighting a war that is epic in this day and age and in every way is being assaulted. And yet we have the idea shown to us in scripture that we can depict God's unfailing covenant love and faithfulness. May we do so and may we do so boldly. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you have given us marriage. I thank you for just the institution of it. It is truly a, a far too wonderful thing for human comprehension in many ways that just like we can look and wonder at the grandeur of the stars in the sky, 
that we can truly look at the grandeur of a good and healthy and godly marriage. But any marriage, Father, any marriage that is by your design, that is between a man and his wife, by design preaches. And all of them testify. And so I pray as we as husbands think about this reality in our lives, that we would keep this in the forefront of our hearts and minds, that as wives continue to contemplate this reality, that they would do so with an urgency in prayer for their husbands, for this is a weighty, weighty calling for us all. And I pray, Father, no matter what, for those who are single, for those who are widowed, for those who are divorced, and for those who have hard marriages, that you would continue to enrapture us with the beauty of the gospel, that we might see that though things might be painted dimly and even miserably and bleakly here, that the true beauty of what Christ has done for us by saving us from sin and damnation and the wrath of God is portrayed for us in a marriage. This is but an earthly window into the eternal reality that we stand to inherit when the church comes to be your bride forevermore. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you have given us grace through Christ. Pray now as we go home that we would never forget this beautiful reality, that we would live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.